Good morning, church. We're going to go into scripture reading. Um, The passage for today is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you would like to follow along with the Bible in the pew in front of you, um, I believe this passage is going to be found on page 1628. And before we get going, I want to um, point out the first sentence in the note above this passage, which will inform the sermon. Um, The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, verse 53, through John 8, verse 11. And we're going to read that today. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, live your life and leave your life of sin. Amen. I want to encourage you if uh, what I was talking about before hits home for you in terms of pain. Oaks is a great ministry to reach out to. They would love to minister to you. Um, also, uh, you don't know this yet, but um, Mike and I are in conversation with two churches on the east side of Madison that are closing their doors, and they're looking for someone, something to do with their building. And we are one of the small group of ministries that they're um, considering giving their buildings to. And um, this is connected with some other things relative to education and so on. Um, so please pray for that. We're in these conversations right now, and um, they're, they're really exciting, but they're still very preliminary. Um, and they're, it's very difficult to navigate that emotionally with people. So um, the elders haven't even really started to look over or look into it yet. We've just had these very preliminary conversations. But we have to have a proposal to one of them by the end of September. Okay, this is going to be something of a strange sermon. This is... One of only two, really the only passage that is in your Bible that is not in the Bible. Which is a huge bummer because if people made a list of their top five favorite passages in the Bible about Jesus, this would make a huge proportion of people's top five lists. In fact, if people only know one story about Jesus in the popular culture, it's reasonably likely this is the one they know. Right? Um, now, you might be like, Nick, why do, you, why do you even meddle with this? Well, part of the reason is this because if we don't acknowledge it, then our kids' faith gets blindsided when they find out about it, right? One of the reasons why people like Bart Ehrman have been so successful in ruining people's faith is because we don't talk about these things. And then when he brings them up in a book, even though we've known about them for literally hundreds of years, 
um, it seems like this brand new revelation. It's like, a, it's like a new Dan Brown novel, you know? It's like, oh my gosh, who knew there were all these conspiracies, you know? It's like the, the, the Gnostic Gospels. I had to read the Gnostic Gospels in seminary. We've known about them for hundreds of years. It's like, then some, some like princess guy was like, you know that there's other Gospels? You know, and people are like, oh my gosh, it's a huge revelation. It's like, well, not really if you know anything, you know? And so, however, it does make us face certain questions. Um, like, for example, the question in your faith, like what happens when you, what you thought was true isn't true for the reasons that you thought it was true, but still maybe isn't false. Like that's an uncomfortable place to be. Or like when you're moving through life and you learn more stuff and you realize that something you think is true strongly conflicts with something else you've now come to believe is true. Or if like you're just maturing and the way you understood something that is true is not an adequate understanding of it anymore because your life is getting more complicated, right? So you tell a, a, a young kid, um, Jesus loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. Do you want to accept Jesus? And they go, absolutely, right? And then more and more they begin to realize God is present in a way, but he's also like really hidden. <laughs> like I pray and I ask him questions and I don't feel like I get direct answers. Like I feel like, and so the presence of God and the hiddenness of God begins to interact in their life, especially when they start to suffer in something. And then they realize that their idea of what it meant that God was present like, that's an—they have an inadequate understanding of that. Either it's false, or it has to grow, right? And one of the things to recognize is—whoops, I think I went too far. Okay, sorry. One of the things that happens is typically, because human beings love simplicity, and they love to think that they're fantastic people, and they love to do what they want, and they also want other people to approve of them, generally speaking, when that happens, what they choose, what we choose, is the thing that gets us those four things. We don't seek the truth. The, the Bible seems to teach that actually seeking the truth, no matter what, no matter what that means for us or anybody else, is actually extraordinarily rare. Almost all of us think that we care about the truth and we would seek the truth. But when you really look at what people do, how they function, how their minds work, what they commit themselves to, it's usually those four things. What is another very simple way to think about it, right? What will make us look good and say that I'm, I was a good person in whatever I did, and it seems plausible because it's honored, right? A lot of people wonder why—I've talked to a lot of people in the last several years who say, you know, I would, I would kind of like to believe in Christianity in a way, but just in my mind, just like emotionally and mentally, it just seems so completely implausible that I just like, I just can't believe it. Okay, now here's the thing. You could see how somebody would really struggle to believe if that's how they felt, right? What people do not understand is that felt plausibility— is absorbed in your culture on the basis of what is honored and dishonored in the community of people you consider yourself belonging to, your tribe. If something is dishonored, your mind in its deeper mental structures creates arguments and structures and ideas and just feels like that thing can't be believed. Now, the reason for that is because if you believed it, you would be shamed rather than honored in the group of people you need to belong to. Has no relationship to the truth at all. But the way it presents itself in your mind is, this is impossible to believe. It's completely unbelievable. But it's not because it's unbelievable. It's because it's unthinkable. Right? And that's what normally happens to all of us. Right? Now, one of the reasons this is important is that in a lot of ways in Christian faith, in fact, in, fact, in almost everything that we believe about God, 
We have to go through a process of growth and holiness, which includes us understanding things deeper and deeper and deeper, even things that we already believe. Coming to faith in Jesus isn't like zero to a hundred in one step. You don't go like, I don't believe in Jesus. Oh, Jesus died for my sins. I believe in Jesus. Now I believe in Jesus. Now all I do is keep believing in Jesus. That's not really how it works, right? You can believe in Jesus and be in faith in Jesus. That is in a relationship with Jesus. But the problem is, is that one of the reasons why it's sometimes helpful to call a relationship, even though it's really weird because he is the present and hidden God, right, is because a relationship is something that grows as you like learn more about somebody. And what you thought about somebody at first, you might keep adjusting and have to continually adjust, especially if the person is deeper, smarter, older, wiser than you thought they were, right? You might have all, you might assume this is true and then realize it's wrong and then think, well, then this is true and then find out that's wrong and then think, well, this is true, but then that's wrong. And you have to keep growing and deepening. So some examples of this is, you might think when you're younger, like a loving spouse or friend is always on your side. And then you have a friend or spouse or a parent or somebody who's not on your side. And so you can either say, you're not my friend or you're not loving, right? You can flip to the other simple thing that simple justifies you, makes you look good and honors you. Or you can say, wait a second, maybe love is to act for the true good of another. And then if you have to be against my will to be for my good, then love is to stand against me, at least in the moment, to affirm me might make you the true enemy of my everlasting self, right? You see how that's a deeper view of love? That clash of that experience where the simplistic view that you are holding and the reality of the life in which you're actually living with God and with other people forces you to be like, well, wait, what is love? I thought love would be you'd be on my side. And the other person's like, I am on your side. I'm on the side of your true good and your true self and your everlasting self. And you're like, well, I want you to— I want it to be simple. I want you to justify me, and I want, I want to be honored. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. And the question is, well, that's what it means to seek the truth, is to risk your honor, to risk simplicity, and to risk whether or not you're the good guy in the story. Like, spoiler alert, if Jesus is right, then every man's a liar. If Jesus is true, you're not going to be the good guy in your story. And your honor is going to come from him, and it's not going to be simple. Right? Another one would be, if God protects us, but I've suffered a lot in ways that haven't worked out, how do I deal with that? Right? You might just flip it and be like, well, God doesn't care about my suffering, and so there isn't a loving God out there. Or you might be like, well, God may be working more angles in the world and in me than I've imagined. And maybe my godliness through pain must be a huge priority to him. And maybe, like Scripture says, identification with Christ and his resurrection power actually comes through suffering, not in spite of it, right? Or, the one we'll look at today, since the Bible is God's word, the text must be reliable. But the Bible has a transmission history with errors and disagreements. You can just flip and say, well then, if there's manuscript mistakes or that sort of, that brings the whole Bible in question, and God's word wouldn't be like that, so the Bible can't be God's word. Or you can be like, well, literally the Bible had to have a transmission history, Right? It's impossible that it wouldn't. I just haven't thought about that before. My view about the Bible just has been kind of shallow. So what do I do? Right? Now, I don't mean to rain on your parade, but this story, the story of the woman caught in adultery, even though it's one of the most fun, Jesus-like stories of the whole Bible, is one of the only passages in the New Testament that's multiple verses that is almost certainly not in the original John. Now, Couple caveats. One, that doesn't actually technically mean this didn't happen. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that when John wrote that original Gospel of John, he did not include this story, especially in this place. 
Does that make sense? And so one of the things we need to ask ourselves is like, okay, what do we do with that? Does this like undermine our view of Scripture or how should we deal with it? Now you might be like, well, Nick, why do you think that? Okay, I'm going to tell you why so that you know. In every, every Bible that you have that's a modern translation, behind it is an original language text. Now, this is a New Testament. In the original language New Testament, there's a section that's written in Greek, right? Because the New Testament was written in Greek. Below it is what's called a textual apparatus. Okay, what that does is it, it, it tells you the comparison of all the manuscripts about that particular verse and what reading all those different manuscripts have because there's thousands of them, right? And so you use the textual apparatus to know which is in the original text, okay? Now, in this particular one, and so, and so the, the certainty of this is A, B, or C, okay? If it's A, it's like, it's definitely right. B is, it's probably right. C is, you just take out a coin and you flip it, okay? Now, most of the C readings of the New Testament are words that don't matter. So, for example, hamon means we, and humon in Greek means you or us. So we or us. And there's a couple places where the, like, the little you versus the eta isn't clear what the author wrote. And it's a C. It's like, we don't know. So Paul could be saying, we are like this in Christ, or you all are like this in Christ. Makes absolutely no difference in the meaning, but we don't know if it's an eta or an upsilon, and so we can't know right? It, that most of the C's are like that. It's like completely inconsequential, right? However, in this case, here's what you'll see. You see how it says A? So the textual adverse is, we know the answer, okay? It's, not, it's clear. And the answer is omit. This doesn't belong here. Ouch, right? That sucks. Now, the reason is, is because this is not in Papyrus 66 and 75, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and so on. Now, the reason that's important is because P66, which is a papyri manuscript, not a vellum manuscript, is from the second century. It's like from 140 AD, less than 100 years from when John was written. It's very early. And papyrus 75 is about 50 years after that, late second century. Okay, so before the year 200. Okay, pretty dang early. And then Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are fourth century, fifth century. Okay, now, including it here is the first one is in this manuscript that's labeled a D. That's just the name that they give the manuscript. And that one is from the sixth century. So the first manuscript where this passage is included in a biblical manuscript is from 600 years after Jesus did or didn't do this. Or 500 years, sorry. 500 years after Jesus did or didn't do this, okay? You get it, right? And as you work through these other witnesses, all these numbers mean these manuscripts come much later. Some of them are like, like 1,200, 1,500, much later. And so the earliest witnesses of manuscripts, and if you look at the church fathers who quoted this section of John, it's like they have no idea this story ever existed. All the earliest church fathers, none of them quote this story because none of them know it because it wasn't in the biblical gospels. Does that make sense? And so although we love this story, when I was in college, I did like this big drama thing in evangelism events where like I was one of the stone-throwing people and it was like this great thing to lead people to Jesus. And like it's consistent with Jesus. But the, the, the reality is, is that the reason this is in there is either it's just a story that was included in different things and it was eventually just like added in, or what some people think is by the sixth century, more and more clergy, Christian clergy and priests knew how to write. And it became increasingly, people wanted to be able to say that Jesus not only could read, like he read in the synagogue in Luke 4, but that he actually could write too. And this is the only text that exists of a story in which Jesus appears to write. And so, as these scholars and scribes and people wanted to be able to say the Savior could write, not just read, that he was fully literate, 
because that was part of respectability in the culture that they were a part of in Byzantium and so on. They wanted to include the story because it was the opportunity to say that the Lord Jesus could not just read, but could write. Does that make sense? Now that may sound like a sucky reason to us, though we do live in Madison, Wisconsin, right? And the more scholarly Jesus looks, maybe the better. But that's not a good reason to include it in the scriptures or to say that John originally included it. Does that make sense? Now, the question is then, um, what should we do with this? Like, that's, that sounds scary, right? Like, then what about my whole Bible? Is my whole Bible wrong? Is it all bad, right? The, the, the standard Christian fundamentalist move on this is, I'm a liberal now, and I don't believe in Jesus or the Bible, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. One, I'm either committed to truth or I'm not. And I need to face the evidence. And if I can't face the evidence, and then I share the gospel with somebody else, and I give really good arguments that Jesus rose from the dead, and God exists, and we should submit ourselves to this, and this is the word of God written, and Jesus is the Christ, I can't ask them to submit to the evidence, and to follow the truth where it leads, and to believe what we should believe, if I can't do it myself. Right? And these aren't made up things. But, but in addition to that, it's actually pretty inspiring, the history of the Bible. The transmission of the text of the Bible is inspiring. It's not embarrassing. The more you know about it, the more exciting it is, the more fulfilling it is, the more interesting it is, and the more you get a sense that the text of the Bible is exactly what it's supposed to be. Let me go through a couple reasons for this. The first is, Jesus' message isn't dependent on a single witness or a single passage. Right? One of the things that you realize when you start trying to compare manuscripts and so on, what you realize is like, there are lots of testimonies about Jesus. Lots of testimonies about his death for our sins, his resurrection to life, the fact that the tomb was empty— all the things that our, ba- our faith is based on has multiple attestations, all of which has been transmitted pretty well, right? For example, if I ask you the question, all right, if the main lesson of this story is that Jesus is merciful, would it be hard for you without the story to determine that Jesus is merciful, that he's this merciful? And the answer is, not if you're reading. Nope. No, this, we're not dependent on this story to say, well, Jesus is, will even forgive sexual immorality. Jesus says everywhere he's willing to forgive sexual immorality. And real, serious sin, right? Because there's so many attestations, so many of these stories have come down to us from eyewitnesses, right? Now, you might be like, yeah, Nick, but come on, like there's, there's, there's mistakes in manuscripts. Okay, listen, you ask yourself, you're writing on woven plants with a stick, and you're copying a book this big. Aren't you being a little judgy? Right? Like, I mean, if you're a monk in the 7th century in a, like a cold stone room in Northern Ireland or Iona, and the Scottish wind is blowing across your chest and you're wearing burlap and you've got like, a, like vellum in front of you and you're trying to like, with a little stick, you're hearing the guy, the only guy who's literate, you're barely literate, and you're trying to copy these manuscripts down. And you're like, was that an Upsilon or an Ada? You know, it's like, I don't know, I'm not really sure. And like, you're trying to get it, but you're trying to get every letter right. But there's like 50,000 letters, you know, and you're like, you're doing your best, right? There is not a single manuscript of the Bible that has no errors in it. There's spelling errors. There's this word that's off. There's that letter that's off. There's some people missed whole lines. I mean, they're, they're like, you know, they, they drank a bunch of barley beer for breakfast and they're falling asleep while the head monk is dictating and this, this stuff happens, okay? But here's the thing. Don't get too judgy, right? There weren't printing presses. There weren't Xerox machines. These people gave months and years of their lives because they thought that this book was so valuable that literally the life of God was revealed and re-spoken in it in a way that was faithful, given by eyewitness testimony, so that you could know the work of God done for you in the man, Jesus Christ. 
And they gave their lives to copy it down for you as accurately as they could, right? Now, it's also true that um, it was done more than any other book in the ancient world, right? There are usually just a few manuscripts of some of the greatest works of things like Plato and Homer. And the New Testament has more than 24,000 fairly complete manuscripts. There's all kinds of fragments, and there's more than 56,000 manuscripts, pieces of them, right? Like I told you a few weeks ago about one that was just a tiny fragment from the Gospel of John, but it dates to 120. So it helps us date the Gospel. It doesn't really help us with the text of the Gospel. It's got like three lines on it, right? And so some manuscripts are helpful for dating, but not for textual transmission. Does that make sense? There's 24,000 that are helpful for transmission, right? Which is an enormous embarrassment of riches. Do you understand? Now, it's also that there's 24,000 New Testament manuscripts and only a few of the other ones, but also the New Testament isn't like one book. It's a whole library of books that have been witnessed to this way. And so the, there's an enormous amount of strength in the transmission of the Bible in multiple attestations, in multiple witnesses, and there's no Bible in the his, no book in the history of the world, no writing of any kind that is attested in its transmission like the Bible. And that does, that's not just because it's magic. It's because thousands and thousands and thousands of people cared that much about you to do this work, to go to those places, to expend those expenses so that this book could be transmitted this well. Right? Also, like, when you look at a passage like this and you're like, Nick, that is like a big, very, it's like a whole story just dropped in there. Like, how many of those are there? Answer, two. There's two in the whole Bible. Now, the other one really sucks. Stinks, sorry. Um, the other one is the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. And that one's a lot trickier because, um, one, the resurrection is still attested to because the women come and they find an empty tomb, okay? But the ending is also really weird because it's like they go, the women find the empty tomb, and they walk away, and that's it, and it just stops. And then there's the longer ending, and the longer ending does look like it's been put together for the end of the Gospel of Mark. But it also seems really weird that the Gospel of Mark would end that way. Like, I, I do not believe that's the real ending of the Gospel of Mark. It may be we don't have the real ending of the Gospel of Mark. It could be the one we have is the right ending, and it was on other manuscripts, and then it got supplied to this one. We just don't know. This one we know wasn't in there. So if you say, how many passages are in the Bible that we know weren't in the original? We actually know it. One. This one. And once you recognize that in the whole of the book of the Bible and all of its transmission, you're kind of like, oh, well, that's it. It's kind of like you're dating somebody. You're like, look, I have a terrible past. It's so bad. You're going to hate me. It's just like, all right, you're kind of bracing yourself that you're going to hear a lot, right? And they're like, oh, yeah. And you're like, okay, okay just, just tell me. Just, just lay it on me, okay? I like you. I want, but I want to know. And they're like, you know, the first time I went to college, I just flunked out. Okay? And they're like, yeah, that's it. And you're like, no, surely that's not it. The way you framed this, right? And it's like, no, that's it. It's, it's kind of like that. It's sort of like, oh my gosh, the Bible is like the text. And you're like, it's this one. Yeah, and I know you like the story. I know you like the story. I'm sorry. You still can tell it. Just say one of the ancient traditions about Jesus is that this happened. It's perfectly fine to say, but it just probably wasn't in the original John. Does that make sense? But once you recognize this is like the only one, this may be the end of Mark's gospel, and then that's it. And here's the thing that's really important is we know where they are. Okay, that leads us to the second point, which is the Bible's transmission history is open and honest. We have the data and everybody can see it. 
You see, part of the issue is you might be like, but Nick, I mean, like, but we want, don't we want the autographs? Like, don't we want the John, John wrote and the Mark, Mark wrote? Wouldn't it be better if God had given us those things? And the answer is, okay, first of all, you don't get to decide the providences of history, right? Secondly, the reason why there are so few manuscripts before about 320 AD is because Christians were being burned alive and murdered and tortured to tell Roman officials where their copies of the scriptures were. It took about eight months to make a copy of the scriptures because you had to literally handwrite everything on papyrus, which was very expensive. It was a very long system of work, and only few people were literate enough to do it. And so protecting the Bible was incredibly important, right? And so they would find bishops, that is, leaders of multiple churches. They would torture them to find the graphias or the writings. They would get the writings, and they would destroy them. And so most of these copies of the scriptures that were made in the first four centuries were destroyed by Roman persecutions. Also, kind of like American flags, people felt like the writings of the scriptures were themselves sacred. So what do you do with the sacred writing? Well, they didn't know— 1,500 years later, the scholars in Europe were going to be doing textual criticism and transmission. They thought that if something was sacred and it fell into disrepair, the honorable thing to do was actually to get—to destroy it. Kind of like when we have American flags and we're like, okay, that's kind of fading. We're about done with that one. Let's get a new one. They would make a new copy, and they didn't think, you know, in 700 years, people are going to be asking serious questions about whether or not that U is really an N, right? And they're like, we should keep this somewhere. You know, they just didn't think in those terms. When Tichendorf in the 1880s went to the monastery of St. Catherine in the desert of Egypt, they were, they were lighting fires to start their fires at night with pages of the Codex Sinaiticus, the greatest manuscript of the New Testament from this fourth century. Because their mentality was things that have fallen into disrepair should be retired. And in some, like one of the greatest manuscripts, there, there was one point where they thought it got too old, so they scraped off the biblical writings and they rewrote onto it another work of this like saint, this like mystic saint from like Antioch or something. And you're like, you did what? And they're like, we didn't know you'd need it. Like, like, we made good manuscripts on purpose, you know? And then also, time and weather just destroy most things, right? There were lots of manuscripts we could have had. But the fact is, is that basically the only place we find these is in deserts. When people put them in things in the deserts, because otherwise just moisture destroys stuff, right? And, but here's one of the interesting things about this. Because people cared so much about the scriptures, and because the gospel was running in so many different directions, the copying ran in different directions. And so you'd be like, well, Nick, it's just like a game of telephone. Somebody makes a mistake, and then everybody copies after that mistake. Yes, except when you send the telephone message in different directions, and it's written, so it's not at all like telephone, right? So what that means is if, if I write a copy, and I give it to this person, this person, and that person, and they give it to two people, if these people make a mistake, the people after them will copy it in this direction, but that same mistake won't be over in this group and copied in that direction. So what text critics realized was that if we group them by where we got them, where they were from, we can compare them so that like if a, if a mistake got into this group, it wouldn't be in this group, but we can correct it from that group and vice versa. And so because of that, because the Christians didn't intentionally destroy any evidence, there's all kinds of bits of evidence from all over time and all over the world. And when you bring it all together and you look at it scientifically, you can reconstruct everything, including that one was not in the original John. But what you can reconstruct is all this other stuff is exactly where it's supposed to be and exactly what it is supposed to be. One contrast to this, um, and I don't want to pick on other religions, but this is a very clear contrast, is in the early days of Islam, the Quran, because it was recited, was going out into different areas. And of course, Islam took over a lot of ground very rapidly. So they were spreading out very rapidly too. 
Well, they found out by the third caliphate. So there was Abu Bakr, Umar, and then Uthman. By Uthman, what they were hearing was is that there were Muslim soldiers quarreling on the battle lines because they were arguing over the right recitation of different surahs in the Quran. And so Uthman was like, that is not okay, right? And so what he did was he put out an edict collecting all the Qurans in the Islamic kingdoms. They were all to be sent to him and his scribes and scholars. He took them all. He did as much textual criticism as he could. He created an official version— and then he burned them all. So there could never be any dispute ever again what the right reading of the Quran was. The problem is, is that there were already commentaries that had been written. There were already, um, there were some people who did not send their, their Qurans in because they didn't trust, trust Uthman. And there were um, people who had already written about variant readings in foreign words. And so Uthman actually didn't get rid of all the evidence that there were variant readings. So now where we are with the Quran is we know there's lots of variant readings. We know that there's not one reading, and we don't have any of the original evidence. It can't be restored. Does that make sense? It's a huge difference. So all of our mistakes— Anybody in the world can go to Oxford or the Vatican or wherever these manuscripts are, and they can look at every scribal error, every drunk monk who put a U instead of an N. Every, any, any graduate student can go and look at that with a magnifying glass and the little white gloves and all that and see every mistake that's ever been made, that we've ever found. But having all the data allows us, with all the mistakes, to reconstruct everything exactly. In other situations, you just can't because the data was destroyed. One of the things I love about the history of the transmission of the Bible is the data's all there. Everything's honest. Everything's in front of you. All the mistakes. Even some scribes wrote stuff in the margins about other scribes. This was written by a completely illiterate scribe. I don't know what this guy thought he was doing. He was completely impious. This is not—I mean, this is all kinds of stuff. And it's all there for everybody to see. It's open and honest. And that's how your translation comes to you, through that process. Every bit of the math can be checked. And I think that's beautiful and exciting and interesting. The result of this is that there are no autographs to worship or venerate. What if we had John's John? Right? Or Matthew's Matthew. Or Paul's Galatians. Right? How would we relate to those? Well, how would we treat them? It may be that God didn't want us to have them, right? Secondly is that there are mistakes in every copy. I said that already. Third is we have an embarrassment of riches in manuscripts because people cared so much about copying this, these books. Fourth is together— the text can be completely re reconstructed. Fifth, the text of Scripture, therefore, that we have today is entirely trustworthy. You know because even these sorts of things are in the text for you to see. Nobody's hiding them from you. And sixth, the transmission is both divine and human, just like we would expect. In the history of the providence of the Bible, enormously, divinely profound providential things have happened. Like that tiny little piece of John's gospel in a dump in Alexandria didn't get destroyed so that somebody could find it and prove that the gospel of John wasn't written in the second century, but was written in the first century, and more likely, therefore, by John. That's an act of providence. That's divine grace. And yet, the whole process is completely human, right? Kind of like the church. Kind of like what we're doing here. God is with us. God is doing amazing things, and he's doing it through us. And it's going to be like this. Okay, lastly, its history is inspiring. There's this passage in Hebrews 11:40 where it says about those who have had faith before us. It says, they, in all they did to seek the promises of God that they didn't receive before they died, they realized in faith that they would only be made perfect with us. In all the history of the people who would have faith and trust God for his promises, seeking a city that's builder and foundation was God's, right? All of us are one together, and only together are we whole. 
The history of the transmission of the Bible is like that. The people who died, the people who faced torture, the kids that were handed a manuscript of the Bible and ran out of the house as the Roman soldiers were coming to kill their bishop. That they were to give it to somebody who was to give it to somebody who was to give it to somebody who was to give it to somebody so that it couldn't be taken, so that it could be copied, right? Nobody knows who that kid is. Nobody knows who these people are. But all of these people, every monk that copied it down, every, every woman, there were, there were two women that learned Hebrew who advised Jerome when he translated the Vulgate, which is the translation of the Bible for a thousand years. Every one of those people who did the academic work, who did the personal work, who gave up their riches to become a monk to have the time to do it, all these people, all of them together with us, reading the Bible, teaching the Bible, carrying it to closed countries, all of these things. This is a drama we're all part of together, right? From translators to transmitters to believers to preachers to carriers to martyrs, right? And then the question that we need to leave with is this. All of this has come to us. At this moment, in this time, these are just some of the tiny costs for this book to come to you. How do you, how do you treat this book? Right? Like we say almost as an abstraction, the Bible is the Word of God written, right? But when you think about what it cost over what generations and what people, through what trials and through what expense, through what blood, through what infighting, through what hatred, through what recriminations, through what dishonor, that this should come to you whole. That every verse you read in it, you can be sure about. From scholar to martyr, that this should be in your hands, in the best translation, in the best shape it's ever been in, for you right now, sitting in your house, capable of collecting mountains of dust. Do you receive this in that way? And you see, I think in one sense, the notion, this is the Word of God written, which it is, should lead us to want to do something about it. But I think also knowing its heritage and history and what we are part of and who we come after and what cost it came to us, that put this in your hands might shape what you do with it, what you think about it, how you care for it, and who you send now to teach it and to translate it. Right? I think also if you think about these people, think about this time and the message of this book of Jesus, the living and risen Christ, being spoken in each of these generations with integrity. What do you really want? Do you want a generation of Christianity that's as easy as your Bible? Is that what you're hoping for? Are you hoping in this generation, this time, that your Christian faith would be as easy as you getting this Bible? Everything's been done for you. You must do nothing. And it could just be there. Or do you want to be like one of the old monks or martyrs? Do you want to be like one of the people that as they like, it was like a woman in labor through their life, that they, they faced cold and hardship and blood and sword and famine and difficulty, that they sat in a library for hours and hours and hours to find that manuscript that had that reading that clarified this question, to, to do the kind of work that something useful might be done for the good of others that cost you greatly, that made an enormous difference in the redemption of others. Do you want an easy generation? Or don't you? And some of that is providence, right? Some of that is, were you born in wartime? Like, what is the moment that you come in? But a lot of it has to do with your choice. And some of the most difficult moments in the history of the world, there were some people that sat out and there were some people that didn't. 
There are some people whose lives are pretty much normal during World War II or the great plagues of Europe and so on. And there were other people who gave their lives, making it better, becoming perfect in the line of all the saints. Right? And I think that this is a metaphor for that. What, what will you do and how will you relate to this book? And also, what will you do and how will you relate to the message and the Christ of this book? And will you allow your view of Scripture, therefore, in its transmission and your reception of it, to actually deepen and expand and enliven and inspire you about God's providence and work and giving you His Word? Or will you let these things be used by gainsaying men and women to undermine your faith so that you can go and do whatever you want? Are you going to flip or are you going to deepen? And I think Jesus would call you to deepen. Let's pray. Lord God, um, I don't know if Jesus did that thing. And we may not know till we meet you. But we're glad to know that every word around it in all of the scriptures stands solid. And this actually comes to us as a testimony of how much you did in your providence to give us a transmitted, uncorrupted word in its transmission. And we pray that um, we would feel that and we would be inspired by it and we would care. And just even today, we would pick up the Bible with just a little bit different eye. And then instead of flipping and saying, like, I don't, I don't like that it's not a clean, simple thing, but that the, the deepness of its transmission, knowing that thousands of brothers and sisters have gone before us and paid with their lives to give us this gift, not just that you gave this gift to us, but that we would receive it as a heritage as well as the divine gift that it is and that we would read and be changed by it and do something with its message in our generation. Help us to not want an easy generation for ourselves. But to be a people who later generations would speak of and say, they brought this to us. They gave us this gift. We pray that that would happen in the life of our church, in the life of our culture, in the life of our spirituality, and how it is centered on and fed by this written word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.